we have the privilege of hearing God's word proclaimed. Expectant that he will meet us and speak to us as his word comes forth to us. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Jeff Schleter. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross of Grace Church. It's my joy to be with you, to welcome you, and to read God's word together with you this morning. And this morning as we do so, we open up the Gospel of Mark and continue our journey with Jesus. As we do, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. We'll be reading this morning from chapter 10, verse 32 through verse 45. That is Mark 10, 32 through 45. Se habla español, abran sus Biblias a Evangelio de Marcos, capítulo 10, versículo 32 a 45. Jesús anuncia su muerte por tercera vez. In this passage before us today, it begins with Jesus' third and final foretelling of his death. And as we begin our time together today, we will turn our attention there. Before me saying anything else, God will address us through his word and fix our minds and our hearts upon the subject at hand. And so without any further ado, let's read God's word together and then pray and ask for God's help. Beginning in verse 32, we'll read verses 32 through 34 and pray. Mark writes this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this morning, my prayer is that I would decrease, and that your son would increase. That as we fix our attention, upon his cross, upon his death. Who he is and what he has done would be magnified in our hearts, and our minds, and that he would be glorified. Send your spirit to help me. Send your spirit to help us to understand, to apply, to be freshly astounded by these things. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, having come to the third prediction in the Gospel of Mark of his impending death, Mark's Gospel up to this point has made it abundantly clear that Jesus will die. But a crucial question remains. Why? Why did Jesus come to die? It's clear he will, but why? This question hasn't been answered yet. And I'll take a page out of Kyle's book and have you ask yourself right now as we begin, what do you believe happened upon the cross as Jesus Christ gave his life? Think about this now. What do you believe happened in and through the cross of Christ? And last week as we, as we gathered and as we heard from Mark 10 in the preceding passage, we learn the doctrine of salvation. That is, that man, you and I, cannot save himself, but receives salvation from God through an empty-handed faith, which rests upon the gracious work of God alone. With man, we heard, salvation is impossible. But, as we learned, God has accomplished the impossible through the death of Christ upon the cross. But what exactly did God accomplish as Jesus died upon that cross? This brings us this morning to the doctrine of the atonement. The doctrine of the atonement. That is, what God did 
to bring us who were separated from him by sin at one, compound word there, with himself. What did God do for us through the cross to bring us at one, together, reconciled to himself? What did God do in and through the death of Christ to achieve our salvation? This is the doctrine, doctrine of the atonement, which tells us why God sent his son into the world to die and what his cross truly means. (laughs) And listen, I can't and we can't overstate the importance of this doctrine. If we don't know this, we won't know the gospel. And we'll be unclear in, in how, or maybe we'll be lacking confidence in the fact that what Jesus has done is enough to give us new life. If we don't know this, we will have no foundation from which to live our lives for Christ and no fuel in following after Christ. We need to know this. We must answer this question. And this morning, as we journey with Jesus through this passage, we follow him into the very heart of the cross. Ascending the hill of Calvary and coming to what has been rightly called the most important verse in the Gospel of Mark. That is Mark 10.45, the verse to which we are headed this morning. The verse that will teach us the doctrine of the atonement and answer our crucial question. The verse that is the goal of our time together today. But to get there, we must once again join the band of disciples who are following after Jesus and failing to understand how the death of Jesus affects every one of their expectations and situations in life. In particular, what's before us this morning is that greatness, something that they and we all in one way or another aspire to, that greatness comes at a cost. This is informed for them and us by the death of Christ. And this morning, we'll continue to meditate upon that theme of greatness as we walk through our passage and journey with Jesus up to the cross. And on the way, we'll see three things that will serve as our three main points to guide our time together. And so taking these one at a time, we return to verses 32 through 34, where we began, and come to the astounding reality that the greatest one came to die. Point number one, the greatest one came to die. And we can't be too familiar with this. And so at the outset, it's as if we with Jesus and his disciples are kind of standing on one hill, one uh, vantage point, and we're looking ahead. And he's saying, everybody look that way. There is the cross raised up on that hill. We take out our telescope, we take out our binoculars, whatever you have, and he says, that's where we're going. This is where it's all headed. And where it's headed is death. Where it's headed, the journey that Jesus and his disciples are on is the cross. And we begin at the back of our journey looking ahead to where it's all going. And so as the scene opens in verse 32, Jesus is leading the way on the journey to Jerusalem, as Mark tells us. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And for the first time, the destination of Jerusalem, this is where they're heading on this journey, is explicitly mentioned. This is the place where the journey of Jesus will come to its climax, where our story will hit its greatest moment of tension and revelation and accomplishment. And Jesus, he's blazing the trail ahead. Mark notes he's not walking with them, but he's walking ahead of them. And his disciples are following behind. And they are both amazed at what's going on, and they're afraid. Wondering what's going to come when they arrive at Jerusalem, the place which was the capital city of, of the Jewish people, where the Jewish authorities uh, were stationed and in operate, operating, and the place from which, up to this point in Mark, many opponents of Jesus have come to uh, test him and to check up on him and to push back on what he's doing, make accusations against him and the message he's preaching. 
the disciples are wondering, what is it going to be like now when we finally get to that place of opposition? They, they're probably thinking to themselves, oh man, the end of our journey is drawing near. What awaits us in Jerusalem? And so being aware of their hearts, Jesus pulls over, as it were, on the road, takes them aside, and he tells them what to expect. And as he does so, this is his third and final foretelling of what awaits the disciples in Jerusalem. And it's also his most detailed and descriptive account of the three. Prior to this in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen in Mark 8.31 that Jesus, the Son of Man, must suffer. That is, according to God's plan, and die at the hands of the Jewish authorities, but will rise again. Second, in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 31, we are told that he will not only be rejected by the Jewish authorities, but that the Son of Man will also be handed over, delivered over, given up by God into the hands of men that they would have their way with him. And finally here, in 10, 33 through 34, as we read earlier, Jesus says this. He says, again, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that is, the Son of Man of Daniel 7, whom we've heard much of already, but the Son of Man, to whom Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says, was given all authority over all kingdoms in heaven and on earth. This Son of Man, the greatest of the great, listen to what's going to happen to him when they get there. This Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And so Christ says, when we get to Jerusalem, here's what you can expect. There, the Son of Man will be delivered over both to the Jews and to the non-Jewish Gentile peoples, such that all the world is in effect complicit in his death. He will be rejected by his own people, as well as given over to those who were not a people, the Gentiles. And in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with that sort of phrase, to be given over to the Gentiles was to be given over to God's wrath, to God's judgment. This is not a, a, a mere historical fact. This is a theological statement. Christ would be handed over to experience judgment from God. Jesus will die by these Gentile hands. But, and we can't just glaze over this and gloss over this, it's not just any death that he will die. It's an utterly horrific death, which we're meant to see in these verses here. He will die under the sentence of legal guilt. The only truly innocent person will die condemned as a criminal. And so charged, he will face the form of Roman execution reserved for the worst of criminals, that is, crucifixion, which was in itself a spectacle, a pageant of mockery designed to deter others from walking in the way of the condemned, signaling to all who would see it and, and behold it that they ought not to upset the order of the Roman Empire like one such as that. For in this execution of crucifixion, the offender wouldn't just be killed, but he would be humiliated, tortured, that is, flogged, beaten mercilessly with whips before they even came to be carrying the crossbeam. And then finally, after being paraded through the streets and set up on a hill, they would die an agonizing death upon a cross. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die this death. Not just any death, but this death. The Son of Man, as I mentioned, a.k.a. the greatest of the greats, to whom all authority belongs, will be turned over to human authorities and killed. Yes, he will rise again. Yes, he will defeat death. Yes, he will prove himself to be unconquered by his opponents and enter into glory, but not without first dying like this. Church, the greatest one came to die. It's for this reason he's marching to Jerusalem, walking ahead of the disciples, resolutely determined to get there, with his face set like flint, as the prophet says of the servant. He knows full well what awaits him, and he presses on right toward it. 
see in this that Jesus, he must die. The greatest came to die, and he must die. Jesus, he, he conveys all this in his third foretelling of his death. <laughs> to which now, in response to this, his disciples, and in particular, James and John, respond with a request. <laughs> and it's a request that once again fails to understand what is going on here. It's a request you and I would probably make too. <laughs> it's not something that is uh, unique to them and their own sort of uh, dullness. It's just what's in the human heart. But they make a request in response to what Christ has just foretold. They've grabbed onto in this the coming of the kingdom of Christ, but they're at a loss to sufficiently count the cost of the kingdom. And this brings us to our second point. First, we had the greatest one came to die. Second, we have the great ones live for others. The great ones live for others. This is verses 35 through 44. And so back to our journey picture here. Having recognized our destination, Christ says, that's where we're headed. We're going to that hill down that way. We get onto the road. This is the way to the top of that hill. To get to the cross, we must, with Jesus and his disciples, go the way of the cross. Walk, walk the road to the cross. And that's what's happening here in these verses. Jesus is both literally on the journey and figuratively, metaphorically, getting us to the cross to understand what it means. And so connecting back to our central concern this morning, in the second point, we find that the meaning of Christ's death is explained in the context of a conversation which revolves around this request made by Jesus, uh, made to Jesus, rather, by the brothers James and John. Look with me at verse 35. It says that, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And so right after Christ has foretold of his suffering and death, the kind of suffering and death we just described, keep that in your minds, he's approached by James and John with a request. And they say to Jesus, you know, give to us whatever we ask, which is essentially saying up front, it's kind of like, hey, can I have a blank check signed in advance for whatever I ask you? <laughs> just want to pave the way for you to say yes to whatever comes after this. Is that cool? And they are hopeful. Jesus asked them in response, well, what do you want? And they respond by saying this. And again, keep the irony before you. They respond by saying to the soon-to-be-crucified king that they'd like positions of prominence in his kingdom. They say in verse 37, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus, we know the kingdom's coming. You're bringing it when we get to Jerusalem. And when we get there, man, we want to be right with you. Grant us to sit in glory with you. Now, James and John, as we've learned in Mark, are part of the inner circle of disciples. They've witnessed the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead in chapter 5. They've witnessed the transfiguration in chapter 9. And they've been privy, kind of as it were, to the kingdom of Christ, which is coming in power and glory. And as their request makes clear, they are eager to reign um, in glory with King Jesus. They want to reign with Jesus, which the New Testament does teach us uh, is precisely the future that's in store for all those who belong to Christ. But they need to recognize and we need to recognize the road that must be traveled in order to get there. As James Edwards uh, comments here, James Edwards, he says this, he says, speaking of James and John, they are quick to claim the benefits of God's kingdom, but slow to hear the cost of participating in it. Quick to claim the benefits, here's what I'll get out of this, but slow to hear the cost of participating in it. What will be required? What will be entailed on this journey to glory? They want to reign with Jesus in his messianic glory. And in this, they, 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 in their request, they do acknowledge his supremacy, they confess him to be the Christ that he is. They speak even in worshipful tones. But as Edwards continues, there's more probably here that's happening in their hearts. He writes, the brothers, listen to this, hope to honor Jesus while honoring themselves. 
how easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest. Or worse, self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. And so they come seeking to reign with him, seeking their own self-interest. They want that glory, not for the purpose of enjoying and sharing it and making much of the glory of Jesus, but getting a little for themselves as well. They are looking forward to the kingdom for what they might get out of the kingdom. This is why Jesus responds in verse 38. Um, knowing their hearts, knowing uh, they are not, uh, they're failing to connect a few dots here. He says, listen guys, you don't know what you're asking for <laughs> if you really want to sit with me in glory. You have an idea of getting something out of this, but you are far from clear on what you're going to have to put into this. He says, you've yet to truly understand that all who would, and this is for us and for anyone, who would aspire to a position of prominence, a place of influence, or desire to lead others, we have to pursue that along the way of the cross. He understands that they want to reign with him, but he turns the conversation around on them by asking if they're prepared to suffer with him. And we can't miss this. He says to them in verse 38, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The cup and baptism here functioning as, as metaphors and pictures from the Old Testament of suffering. Jesus says, Are you prepared to take on what I'll take on when I arrive at Jerusalem? You say you want the kingdom, but are you prepared to die for it? And in their ambition, they reply in verse 39, yes, we are able. And again, we'd probably say the same thing. Yes, we are able. And on the one hand, this couldn't be further from the truth, right? They can't drink the cup that Jesus will drink and undergo his baptism. Truly, only Jesus deserves the glory, right, of the kingdom because he is willing to die on the cross in order to establish this kingdom. The disciples, they can't bear it. Only Jesus can do this. But James and John think they can, because they've yet to grasp the full significance of the cross. They say, yes, Lord, like you, we're prepared even to die for the kingdom. And then on the other hand, there's some truth to this even as Jesus admits it, right, as he follows up his reply to them, he says that, well, on one hand, they will come to share in the drinking of that cup, in the baptism with which he is baptized. They will come, the disciples, to suffer and even die for him. James becoming a martyr in the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 12, where he is beheaded by Herod. John suffering a living death, as it were, ending his life in exile on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. They will suffer and even die for the sake of the kingdom, but their suffering and their death will not produce the same results as Jesus. Christ will suffer to make atonement, as we heard earlier, between God and man. The disciples will suffer as those who are following after the redeeming Savior, not as those whose suffering is in, its, in itself redemptive. So Jesus is helping them to understand this, and he's trying to clarify this thinking for him, for them. But then in verse 40, he tells them that though he can guarantee their suffering, <laughs> he won't guarantee them a special place. <laughs> so how's that for encouragement? Well, I, thrones, I'm not sure, but suffering for sure. I got plenty of suffering for you. <laughs> he says in verse 40, look with me at verse 40, he says, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared, that is, by God the Father. He says God the Father would be the one to give glory to these brothers if they receive it at all, even as he gives the glory to Jesus. And here Jesus isn't trying to teach that he's inferior to the Father in some way but that the disciples following in his way as the God-man, as the Messiah, must entrust themselves, listen to this, wholly to the Father, just as Jesus is. And they must receive whatever he has in store for them. Jesus doesn't guarantee that they will receive any special blessing. Instead, he wants them to focus on following him as their reward and trusting God with whatever results come out of that. That's the blessing. That's the wonder that they would be following after Christ. 
on the way to eternal life. So in this response, we see that Jesus hasn't shut down their desire for greatness, but he's teaching them in order to clarify the path toward true greatness. And this lesson continues in verses 41 through 44 as the remaining 10 apostles catch wind of James and John's request. (laughs) Verse 41, if you look at, at it with me, it tells us that the 10 are indignant. And this is the verse we heard last week in chapter 10, uh, where the disciples told the the children they could not come to Jesus, they forbade it, and it says that Jesus was what? He was indignant. He was indignant. He was angry because in the disciples refusing these humble ones to come to him, they were misconstruing the very character of God. In contrast, the disciples are indignant because they feel the brothers are trying to get one up on them, that they are being left out. They're going, man, why didn't I ask that? They fear that if James and John get the thrones, there's only one right hand and one left hand, so that kind of has a limited amount of spaces here. (laughs) If they get it, that means I can't have it. Yes, even in this, the disciples, the disciples, (laughs) the apostles, I mix them together, they suffer from FOMO. They fear missing out of the glory that James and John aspire toward. And so in verses 42 through 44, Christ, he seizes upon the moment to address their hearts, longing for prominence, longing for greatness, longing to to share in all that benefit. He addresses their hearts as well as ours. He says, to all who want to be great, to all who want to be prominent, to all who want to be influential in their lives, to all who desire to lead or to be in authority, to be respected, to be honored, to any who want to be set up in the first position. Christ speaks. And according to Jesus, contrary to the way of the world, the great ones, the truly great ones, sacrifice. The great ones sacrifice. They give up for the sake of others. They give up one thing for the sake of a greater thing. Their greatness consists in what they give up and not in what they get. So look with me at verse 42. Jesus says, here's how the world works. Here's what's kind of out of the box in our human heart. This is how we think. This is how the world works. This is how the flesh typically runs. He says this in verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, in effect, that this is how the world works. Human beings wielding authority like it's really theirs, like it's their right, like it belongs to them, and they didn't receive it from someone else. (laughs) He says this is how humans work. They, typically speaking, um, wield the power like it's theirs, that in the world, authority is exercised in a domineering sort of way, to gain mastery over, to control other people. It's about what you can get out of people, right? Not what you could give to them. And Jesus says, this is not the way his kingdom works. Flipping the entire thing on its head, he says this in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. Among those who lead in my kingdom, he says, among my people, as they exercise leadership in whatever capacity, it has been granted to them by God. And church, At one point or another in our lives, we all are in positions to exercise leadership. There is nobody who is not simultaneously being led, but also positioned in places to be leading, to exercise leadership and influence and authority over someone else. And so this speaks to all of us. Jesus says, here's how it works in my kingdom. Continuing on, he says, but whoever would be great, you want to be great? Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be great must be your servant. Those who are great are not those who are served, but on the contrary, are the very ones who do the serving. But as Christ has already taught us in Mark 9.35, he continues on saying this, that whoever would be great must be your servant, and continuing on, whoever would be first among you 
must be slave of all. And this is an utterly inconceivable concept in the first century, that a, a, a person in slavery, of which most of the population at one point in the Greco-Roman world was enslaved, or they knew someone who was enslaved, and this was just how things worked. But these were folks who were low. And for Jesus to say, the one who would be high, the one who would be first, must treat themselves, must make the choice to identify, to operate, to function in the capacity of the one who is last who is lowest, who is least, must count everyone else as having a greater honor than themselves. Jesus is in effect saying, whoever has been placed in a prominent or a chief position has been placed there in order to be the chief servant. If you're first, Jesus says, you're first to serve. That's why you've been put first. Not to gain, not to domineer, not to feel good about yourself (laughs) and get respect. You've been placed there for the sake of others to serve them. That's why I've placed you in these roles. And you won't really understand. You won't really operate in them. You won't really be effective (laughs) in leadership and authority and being where you want to be until you grasp that. That position is not for you (laughs) to be glorified. It's for you to serve others for the glory of God. Jesus teaches them about sacrificial leadership here. He says that true greatness consists in this sort of sacrificial leadership in which we give up our own pursuit of glory for the good of others and in doing so live lives of service for the glory of God and not ourselves. Sacrificial leadership, that is using our authority our position, our prominence, whatever you, know, you have given by God as a platform from which to serve others, giving up the glory of being served, of being honored, of being spared from the grunt work, being beholden to others, and so on, for the good of those you've been positioned to serve. Those who are great in Christ's kingdom give up the glory and the prerogatives that come with greatness for the sake of benefiting those they've been given to lead. They lead for the sake of others. Not for their gain, not for their benefit, but for the sake of others. And the crazy thing, right? In this way, here's the paradoxical wisdom of the kingdom of God. (laughs) Those who give up the glory of their prominence, we see this, we know this, actually come to possess even greater influence, don't they? (laughs) It it actually works. (laughs) It's true what Jesus says. The leader who gets out in front of his people, like Jesus was doing, leading the way to Jerusalem, the leader who gets out in front instead of barking orders from the back, right? We've all seen that, like that graphic, that image of like, you know, managers or whatever, and there, there are those who sit in the back, and they're like on a throne, and they're shouting orders at the people in front of them. And then there's the opposite picture of the one who's out in front, the leader who is getting down and dirty into the nitty-gritty of what's going on with his people, who is leading the way, who is leading by example, and who doesn't ask those he leads to do anything that he won't first do himself. This is the sort of leader who, in leading by example and becoming the first servant, actually shapes and forms and affects his or her people more than the leader who sits back and relies on authoritative demands and says, give me respect, do as I say, but not always as I do. Christ isn't the leader who says, do as I say, but not as I do. He's the leader who blazes the trail of service before us. And so church, ask yourselves, do you use the positions the Lord has placed you in to benefit yourself primarily or others? Ask yourself, in your life, as things are right now, who has God positioned you to serve? Ask yourself, what would it look like for you to pursue this kind of greatness through service? And I have a couple categories to help us here. (laughs) There are many, and we could talk at length about them, but we'll try to be quick in moving through this portion. But we can pursue greatness as service in a number of ways. Chief among those would be our homes, our homes and our marriages. This is a prime arena, right, our homes and our marriages, where we desire respect and recognition and where our hearts, oh man, fraught with trouble, fraught with temptation when we perceive we do or or don't get that. There's a lot at stake here in our hearts when it comes to honor and greatness. 
but there's a lot we can apply in seeking to be truly great. Husbands, we can apply this by leading and loving our wives in, a, in such a way that's not being harsh, as Colossians 3 says, in the way we exercise authority and leadership in the home. Not making demands and commands, rewarding performance with affection, or saying, here's how it's going to be, without striving to know your wife, to encourage your wife, to equip your wife for her calling, and to live with her in an understanding way as you lead her to where the Lord would have you go. Husbands, Jesus stopped, right? And he called the disciples over to him to make sure they knew where they were going. That was the way he led his people. Would we lead our homes in the same way, saying, family, here's where we're going. Here's what the Lord has for us. Here's how we're going to get there. Let me encourage and support and equip you to get where the Lord would have us to be. Wives. Oh, <laughs> wives and mothers of Cross of Grace Church, I don't really have much for you here. <laughs> you already do this so well. We are surrounded, church, if you look around, by many great ones in this room who love their husbands, who love their children, and who have been taught by God to put others first. And you so consistently do this, ladies. And to you, I just give an encouragement. Your work is great. Your work is great. Your calling is noble. And even when in your estimation or in the worlds around you, what you apply yourself to in the mundane, often thankless, often unnoticed, myriad of sacrifices that is your day, Christ is glorified. Christ is glorified in you. Oh, we could say more, but I'll move on. Parents and children. Parents, your children don't exist to serve you, to satisfy you, to sustain the weight of your hopes, to live vicariously for you, or give you identity. You exist to serve them and to lead them toward the cross, to lead them in the way of the Lord, and you aren't to gain glory from them, but you are to glorify God in and through the way you love them and lead them and share the gospel. Children to parents, especially teens in the room, and there's a couple of you teens or burgeoning teens. Kids, even as this is true on one hand of your parents, that uh, you are there to be served by them, <laughs> you should not respond by expecting that you'll only ever be served <laughs> and never be called to serve. <laughs> especially older kids and, and teens, your parents are there to lead you, not so that you can become entitled to only and always receiving, but so that you can behold their example and become servants like your mom and dad. Oh, in the workplace, everyone here is likely uh, under someone's leadership or leading others at work in some way or another. In either way, I would encourage you to see your work not as a means to an end of your own benefit, as in, I come in, I do my time, I do my work, I get paid, now I just get to leave and go home and do what I want. But see your workplace as an opportunity to be there for the benefit of others. Even, listen, if it's not in your job description, <laughs> is there a way you could lend a hand to a coworker who is struggling? Even though you might rather sit in your office alone uh, or in your car during your lunch break, just getting away from it all for a minute. <laughs> Is there someone God has placed you around that you could invest in, that you could care for, that you could share the gospel with even? Use that time at work, not for yourself, but for the sake of others. God's placed you there quite a bit, and he wants to use you to serve others as you're there. Oh, in the church, there's a lot we could say here. <laughs> but when we use our gifts and, our, and we do the ministry that God has called us to, would we do so with a focus on one another's good, not for our own greatness and glory, Really simply put, a great church would be filled with believers whose motto is this. He, being Jesus, must increase, and we must decrease. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. And finally, to our neighbors. God has placed us in Santa Ana to benefit our neighbors in a way they could never benefit us in return. <laughs> That's the truth of it. We have the gospel of life. And we've been sent here to serve them outside these doors, to speak to them and shine forth the goodness of the life that we have in Christ. Our neighbors aren't here to enlarge our church or to uh, make, you know, something of what we're trying to do here. Um, 
They are here because we've been called to serve them with the gospel. And would we do that in faith? Oh, church. The bottom lines here are that we ought to be (laughs) exercising this kind of sacrificial leadership wherever we can. And in turn, we ought to be encouraging the sacrificial leaders in our lives. As we see sacrifice in action, we should pray for Pray for those who are leading. We should encourage them when we see the sacrifices they make. We should say thank you to one another as often as we can for serving because Christ is honored in this way. And this is the way the kingdom works. This is greatness through service. The great ones are those who sacrifice. But, and this brings us back to our main question, what grounds it? What motivates our pursuit of this greatness? Truly at bottom, underneath it all, why should you live for others? And the answer is this, and it's our third and final point. It's because the greatest one died for you. Why should you live for others? Because the greatest one died for you. The greatest one died for you. Mark 10, 45. We arrive now in our journey, at the top of the hill. And in so doing, we've arrived at the heart of the atonement. We've arrived at the heart of the cross. We've come to the cross, and now we can behold it for what it truly is. We can peer into what God has purposed to happen there, in and through the death of Jesus. A death which is not just his own, but a death that is simultaneously for us. This is the foundation and the fuel for our sacrificial lives. That is the sacrificial death of Christ. Our sacrificial service is freeing because it's founded upon and reflects that freeing sacrifice of Christ. James and John, they wanted Jesus to give them a position of glory and greatness. And Jesus, more than anything else, he came to give them and us his very life. Look with me at verse 45. Earlier we mentioned the Son of Man, the one to whom all authority has been given, to whom all authority belongs. That passage in Daniel 7 continues to say this in verse 14. That the Son of Man, who was given dominion and glory, listen to this, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the atonement. This is the cross. The one who should be served came to serve. And how did he serve us? He came, leaving the glorious heights of heaven for the lowly humiliation of earth, not to be served. (laughs) The one who deserved all service from all people, but to serve. That is to do something for us that we could not do ourselves, that only he could do. And how did he do this? By giving his life. He gave his life in death, unto death on a cross. Such was his sacrifice that he valued not even his own life as worth not not giving up for our sake. He gave his very self for us. His service is this sacrifice. And he gave his life, it says, as a ransom. That is a price that was paid back in the ancient world, to liberate a slave, to liberate a prisoner of war or a condemned person, to pay the price to get them free. His death had an effect of freeing those who were bound. It says he came to give his life as a ransom for, that is, instead of, or in the place of who? Many. He came to give his life, not for his own sake, but for instead of, in the place of many, many who were captive to sin and its penalty, many who were condemned before the righteous judgment of God for sins of rebellion against God, the King, who were separate from him with no ability to get back to him in and of themselves. He came to give his life for them, to pay a price for them, for the many, referring back to Isaiah 53, that the servant would come, uh, to bear the sin of many, as Isaiah prophesied then. He did not die for his own sake, church, but for theirs, for the many, but for ours. 
his people. And this really is the heart of the gospel, and we can't cease to be astounded by this. That, as Jesus says himself in Mark 10, 45, he says, I won't just die. We know that part. I won't just die, but I'll die for you. Let that sink in. Don't be too familiar with that. I won't just die. I will die for you. You and I were on the chopping block, facing the firing squad, neck in the noose, oncoming traffic headed straight toward us. We were dead to rights. We were condemned. There was nothing we could do to shake loose of our situation. And so it says here in Mark 10, 45, that Jesus steps in for us, paying the price that we owed to God for, for our sin, the debt we owed for our rebellion, but it was impossible for us to pay because we've, ascent, we've sinned against an infinite and eternal God. <laughs> we can't possibly make it right with anything we could offer to him in return. And so Jesus comes to pay our price by dying in our place to satisfy the penalty that was put against us, doing so as our substitute. He takes our place. He offers his life as a ransom to God in exchange for our own. There's a transfer that takes place here. He's dying to fully bear the penalty of God's wrath for us. So listen to this. So that we'd never have to. Isn't that good news? So that we'd never have to. In his death upon the cross, what happens to him is what should have and what would have happened to us if he wouldn't have stepped in. When he arrives to Jerusalem to die, he's not merely some sort of martyr for the kingdom cause, right? Fighting the power and all that. He is a mediator. He won't just die because he's opposed by men. He'll die to make atonement for men. The king will not simply die because of rebels to his rule, but even more amazingly, he'll die for rebels. Even his opponents, even as they take his life, truly, he is going to Jerusalem to lay it down on purpose. He's marching in to make a sacrifice. And as Martin Luther commenting on this reality, writing in his commentary on Paul's letter to the Galatians, as he writes, speaking of what's happening in and through the cross, he says, when the merciful father, listen to this quote, saw that we were being oppressed through the law from which comes our knowledge of sin, the ways in which we fall short of the glory of God, that we were being held under a curse and that we could not be liberated from it by anything he sent his son into the world, heaped all the sins of all men upon him, and said to him, listen to this, be Peter, the denier, be Paul, the persecutor, blasphemer, and assaulter, David, the adulterer, the sinner who ate the apple in paradise, the thief on the cross, I could add, be Jeff Schleter, the proud, selfish, and weak man. Be the men and women of Cross of Grace Church, this one, the addict. This one, the harsh and angry with others. This one, the sexually immoral. This one, another, the self-righteous. This one, the bitter doubter. This one, the jealous. And so on and so forth. Be them. That back to Luther. In short, he says to his son, be the person of all men. The one who has committed the sins of all men and see to it that you pay satisfaction for them. In other words, he says, be their substitute. Be their ransom. Die for them in order that they may live at one with God. Oh, and this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ before, know that his death was enough to pay the price for your sin as well. We know this because after he gave his life as a ransom, what did God do? He raised him from the dead so as to tell everyone forever that the ransom price was paid in full. It was enough. The Father has received it such that all who trust in Christ can be confident that there remains for them no debt to pay. This morning, trust in Jesus oh, and receive the full forgiveness for every sin, the new life in perfect peace with the Creator King that comes through his sacrifice. Oh, trust in Jesus this morning. Hmm.
Oh, church, would we respond to this with fresh astonishment? Would we respond to this truth by embracing a sacrificial attitude as we live our lives that says, <laughs> not for my glory, Lord, but for yours? If, if only I could do anything to reflect your work, to reflect your ransom, to reflect your sacrifice and glory in my salvation, oh, Lord, it would be worth it. All the sacrifice, all the toil, help me to trust that every sacrifice I make, even if it doesn't seem to yield fruit, uh, to be well-received by men or women, that it honors and glorifies you. Would we respond to his sacrifice by embracing a sacrificial attitude that shows up to life and says, hey, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve because that's what Jesus did for me. And so church, as we come to a close, leaving off on that sacrifice of Christ, we've answered our crucial question. Why did Jesus come to die? He came to die for you. Giving up his life for yours, paying a price you could never afford. Taking on all your sin, granting you the glory of forgiveness and freedom. So that, listen, wherever you sit, when the thrones are brought out in heaven, you have the confidence that you will have a place of joy before our God, wherever you sit, and never come into judgment. Oh, church, the greatest one died for us. Would this be our enduring fuel as we live to give glory to him? Let's pray. Jesus, we can't thank you enough that you would give your life for the sake of ours. And we pray that, Lord, we would see this, we would be astonished at it, we would receive it afresh for our souls today, such that we would glorify you in your finished work, such that we would be refueled to live as a sacrifice for your glory and to live for the sake of others. Oh Lord, be honored and glorified as we respond to this word today. In your name we pray.